Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Gronini A, and this week, is the internet bad for our brains? From applying for a loan to staying in touch with relatives in far-flung corners of the world, the rise of smartphones mean that a whole host of useful services are just a thumb touch away. During the pandemic in particular, technology became crucial in keeping schools, shops and jobs going at a time when everything else seemed to stop. But despite how wonderfully entertaining and useful all of that is, many of us may feel that being increasingly online isn't good for our heads, that we're distracted more easily and that we're mindlessly scrolling a little bit too much. But is all of this technology's fault or is it just our bad habits and how we use technology? The latest cycle of the Good Information Project looked at the digital age, at topics like whether you trust social media with your data, how to regulate big tech, and your suggestions on how to fix the internet. As part of that look at the digital age, cyberpsychology researcher and lecturer, Dr. Nicola Fox Hamilton, joins me on the podcast today to explain and maybe even debunk some of these thoughts around how we use technology and the effect it has on us. So Nicola, if you could start off by giving us an overview of what we know about the effect technology is having on our brains. I'd start by saying that basically the brain is plastic. It very much changes based on our experiences, all of our experiences. And that's not necessarily a good or bad thing. It depends on what our experiences are. It's particularly plastic in very early years, so newborns and young children, where essentially it's it's kind of the underlying function of learning. Um, you know, as we learn new things, as we experience new things, our brain constantly changes. So of course, using technology is changing our brains to a degree. When we're older, it changes them less, but there's no empirical evidence or evidence base at all that it is, you know, as you sometimes see claimed that it's rewiring our brains or it's having a drastic impact on them at all. In fact, the studies that are done on this are quite small scale. It's quite a new area. It's really in its infancy. And the evidence that does exist shows very, very small correlations between technology use and, say, outcomes in children, like very, very, very small. And not enough that we can even say that there's a practical impact on children themselves. Like when you get a very small statistical um, result, it doesn't mean that it has practical significance in the real world. So there's a lot more research that needs to be done in this area. But Essentially, it's not like massively rewiring our brains or completely changing how our brains function. What there is a little bit of evidence for is that when our attention is divided, we tend to remember things less well, so it can have a little bit of an impact on our working memory. And obviously, when we're using technology all the time, if we're using it when we're supposed to be working or studying, that could have an impact on our kind of our functional working memory in that context because we're dividing our attention. Um, but there is mixed evidence to what degree and so on that that happens. Um, and then there's also evidence that certain types of technology, like some games and some apps, can actually improve cognitive performance, improve fluid intelligence, which is basically our problem solving ability and other aspects of cognition. So it's really there's good and bad sides to it, potentially. But we need a lot more research to be sure of any effects at all. And a lot of the research so far is correlational, which means we can see that there's a relationship between the things, but we have no idea whether one causes the other or not. Okay, so it's a bit of a mixed bag, but what about being online a lot? Is that shown to have a bad effect on us the more we use technology and the more we're online? 
So this is one of the big debates that's been going on for a long time about basically screen time, you know, how long we spend online and what effect that might have on us. Um, and it's not really the most useful way of looking at it, because if you think about screen time, it encompasses everything that we do online. You were talking about how we do all these different things, connect with friends and family, do online banking and so on. They're all very different from each other. We work, we learn, we connect with people, we use it for entertainment, watching Netflix, things like that. And so there's this broad range of experience. So what we really need to look at is the context and the content that we're engaging with. So when people engage with content that makes them feel good, essentially, um, it tends to impact uh, or have a relationship with more positive well-being for a short period of time afterwards. When they don't feel good about what they're doing, it tends to have a negative impact on their short-term well-being for a little while afterwards. So it's really about what we're doing rather than how long we're spending doing something in general or what sort of screen time we have. Like screen time's not actually a terribly useful measure because it's so broad. What it's basically like saying is measuring life, but just one, you know, one place where we engage with life, which is online. So I think it's a bit more complex than that. You mentioned the different things that you can do online, like switching from TikTok videos to news articles to WhatsApp all in a matter of seconds. But is that method of consuming media hard for our brains to do? Um, not necessarily. Our brains are very adaptable and we are quite good at processing information. Now, having said that, we are processing a lot of information. Um, and so sometimes people can find that they've got cognitive overload where essentially there's just too much going on and that can happen online. Um, but we're actually reasonably good at managing information. We pay attention to the stuff that we want to pay attention to and we can get distracted online. But I don't think it's inherently a huge problem in the way that it's sometimes presented, that it's, you know, there's, there's a recent book that came out that presents this idea that our attention is gone and destroyed. And that is not the case. There's certainly no empirical evidence to support that view at all. So similar to how people were warned too much television would make your eyes go square. Are we sometimes falling into the same trap and thinking that it's technology's fault when it's actually how we use it and how often we use it? A hundred percent. So moral panic is something that's been around for a long time. Before television, it was radio and movies and novels. Like this has been going on. The same arguments are presented over and over again. If you look at those, um, Amy Orban did a wonderful article about radio back in the 1940s and the kind of arguments were people um, that people were making about how it would destroy children's brains. They wouldn't communicate with each other anymore. They wouldn't know how to develop social skills, et cetera, et cetera. Exactly the same arguments that we're seeing now about technology. We also saw them about television. We saw them about films. Go back further again. You saw them about novels destroying young boys and turning them into killers and destroying women because it gave them ideas about the world. Like These kinds of things have been going on for a very long time. And technology is no different. And it's particularly heightened around young people. You know, that it's destroying children's brains, that they're not social, they can't communicate anymore, et cetera, et cetera. And actually, there's really very little evidence for any of it. We might go back to what is healthy uh, later on in the podcast. But first, what about the positives to using technology or using it often? So there are a number of positives depending on the kind of technology that you're using. Um, so let's take social media because it's something that most people engage with quite a lot. If you're using social media to connect with other people, to gain social support, which a lot of people are using it for, then it can be very beneficial. So it helps connect you to your community. 
um, and social support is hugely important for well-being. And a lot of people are able to find that online. And that can be people that you know, so connecting with your friends and your family. It can also be in environments with people that you don't know, so support groups for, say, illnesses or um, other things that people are going through, parenting groups, etc. Those can be immensely beneficial for people. And so there are lots of benefits to that side of social media. Now, on the other hand, if you engage with social media in a way where you're doing it to um, procrastinate or you're not actually connecting with people, so all you're doing is browsing, you're passively using it rather than actively using it, you're more likely to end up comparing yourself negatively to others and maybe feeling envious about people's lives because you're not actually engaged in the process of posting yourself. So what happens when you post yourself is you know you're aware that you're presenting a more positive aspect of your life, not the full range of things going on in your life. It's authentic, it is who you are, but it's just one side of yourself. Um, and when you aren't actively doing that, you forget that that's what other people are doing and you view their life as this highlight reel of perfection and you can start to feel very envious about it and that can lead you to compare yourself to other people and that doesn't feel so good so it's about how you engage with it um, rather than the fact that you're on social media and then things like gaming are associated with very strong connection with other people with social support forming communities and also some games um, with increased cognitive skills problem solving skills and so on. So there's lots of benefits of technology, even when you use it quite a lot. Um, aside from the fact that it's enjoyable and it can be used as a form of escapism, which people often frame as a negative thing, but people have been using books and movies and things as escapism for a very long time and it's very enjoyable. There's nothing wrong with that as long as it's not having an overall negative impact on your life. People have long complained about shrinking attention spans because of the internet. And throughout the pandemic, this kind of seemed to increase where people seemed to think that they just couldn't focus on something for a certain amount of time. You touched on this earlier, but can we say for sure that technology is reducing our attention spans or that it got worse during the pandemic? And uh, no, I don't think we can actually say that at all. Um, evidence around this idea that there was a fixed attention span really isn't terribly good. Um, if we use technology to distract ourselves during something where we're supposed to be focusing, yes, that can have a problem on our working memory and how much we remember and therefore how much knowledge we have, how much we can connect ideas and so on. But our attention span isn't necessarily shrinking. And during the pandemic, you know, we were all using technology more because we were using it to work and to go to school and college and to connect with people because we couldn't connect with them any other way. Those were all very positive things. And there were a lot of things drawing on our attention during the pandemic, namely it being a pandemic and a very stressful time and a lot of unusual things going on in the world. And so I don't think like there's certainly no evidence that technology was the thing that were, was causing attention issues. In fact, research from the pandemic, let's say looking at say gaming, was that people found that gaming allowed them to connect with other people, made them feel better, gave them a sense of control over their environment because they could go into the game environment and escape a little bit from the real world and have some sense of control in there and enjoy it and take a break from the stress of the pandemic. They were using it to play games with friends and family that they might not normally play with. And that was a really, really positive thing for them. So there's, there were lots of positives about technology during the pandemic, I think. 
What about our memories? You mentioned some of the studies that do maybe indicate or hint at how it might affect our memories. Does having Google at our fingertips mean that we're exercising our memories less often and that means we're a little bit more forgetful because of that? I think what the evidence actually shows, it's quite interesting, is that rather than remember a lot of facts now, we remember how to find information or where to find information. We're able to cognitively offload a lot of information into our phones or Google. So we don't have to remember the dates of every single thing in a war, for example, because we know where we can access reliable information about that if we want to. So we're able to remember different kinds of information. What's really interesting about this and a potential downside of it is um, there was a wonderful study done where students were asked to take a test and they, if they had their phone with them or a laptop with them or no access to technology, it affected how they thought they would do on the next test that they did. So if they had their phone with them, which we always have access to and we're always Googling things, they felt like they would do equally as well or better on the next test, even if they didn't have their phone. So it's almost like we view the phone as an extension of our brain. And we forget that if we don't have the phone, that we don't actually have that information. With a laptop, there was a bit of that, but a little bit less because you don't carry your laptop around everywhere with you. You only have access to it sometimes. And people who didn't have a laptop or a phone during the first test thought that they would do as well or the same on the next test. They didn't think they would do really well. So there is this idea that when we have access to information at our fingertips all the time, we feel like we have that information in our brain almost and that we, you know, that we're that smart. <laughs> um, so that might be a little bit of an issue if we don't have access to our phone or for students, say, taking exams who've used their phones a lot to help them um, keep up to date with information or to research things. That could be a little bit of a problem. That's so interesting. And I suppose it makes sense when we think of when we don't have our phones on us, it makes us feel a little bit more anxious. But I want to ask you about something that's almost the opposite of that, about the perma crisis we seem to be living in. Many of us may feel we've been doom scrolling through an endless stream of bad news and outrage for the past few years. Is that damaging for our brains? Again, there's no evidence that it's damaging for our brains. Like the research on the effect on our actual brains is extremely limited, really, in a lot of these areas. Certainly the kind of information that people are more likely to click on that goes more viral online tends to be information or content that's more emotional, so emotionally heightened, that may, draws people's interest more, they're more likely to share it. Um, and that can be positive or negative um, emotion. And so, yeah, we are more likely to see that kind of information and be drawn to it. And it's why so many headlines are very clickbaity because that is quite effective. When you make a headline like that, there's no nuance in it. It's very black and white. And a lot of people quite like that. There's a certainty in it. And so that's also why a lot of fake news goes viral because again, it can be very black and white because it's made up. It's not true. There doesn't have to be any nuance in it. And for people that can be quite reassuring, I suppose. But whether or not it has effect on our brains is there's really no evidence about that. Do we know what having kind of more access to more constant bad news would have on our brains, whether it's online or not? Again, I think that comes back to that idea that when you're online, it's about what you're doing and how it makes you feel. So if you're constantly on Twitter following the war in Ukraine at the moment, and it's making you feel absolutely terrible, 
but that's all you do and you spend quite a bit of time each day doing that and you're not doing the things that make you feel good, then that's probably not a good habit to be in. Whereas if you're online, you see a little bit about the news, but you also spend time talking to friends or reading interesting articles or watching funny cat videos or doing something else that also makes you feel good, then you're less likely to have a negative effect on your well-being. Now, any effects on our well-being from scrolling through social media are quite short term. They're not going to affect us in 10 years time. It's a kind of a few hours um, impact on it. So it's not a long-term effect. It's not going to be hugely negative long-term, but if it's not making you feel good, it's important to be aware of that and have a little bit of, um, I suppose, awareness around what you're doing and how it's making you feel so that you can change your habits if you need to. What about the urge to mindlessly scroll? Is there a reason why we like doing that? Um, I think for entertainment, to alleviate boredom, to relieve stress, escapism, there's a lot of different reasons. Like people have a lot of motivations for engaging with social media and online content in general. Everybody is a little bit different. You might be, you might have different reasons at different times. Um, so even something like, you know, online dating, people have completely different reasons for using it. Sometimes it's just boredom. Sometimes it's because they want to find the love of their life. Social media is very similar. People are doing it because they want to find out what their friends are doing or they want to see what the latest fashion is or they're just bored sitting in a waiting room waiting for something. And so it really depends what your reasons are. Like, again, we've used escapism and we've done other things to alleviate our boredom in the past that weren't technology related. And there wasn't really any moral panic about what that was doing to us or what that was doing to our brains. So I don't think it's necessarily um, particularly negative. What about the link between social media and dopamine? Is that kick we get the reason why we're so drawn to it? Um, I mean, it's part of it. So everything that we do that's pleasurable gives us a dopamine hit. Eating gives us dopamine. So does sex. Um, so do drugs. They all give us dopamine hits, but the amount of dopamine we get from them is very, very different. So um, eating and uh, sex, it's quite a small amount of dopamine. Social media be a small amount of dopamine. Um, and it's because it's something that we enjoy. So that's like fine. That's OK for us to do. So it's often social media and the Internet are often compared to drugs in terms because they release dopamine and in terms of the effect they have on us. But the amount of dopamine that drugs released is hundreds or thousands of times more than social media does. So it's more like eating a little bit of chocolate when you go on social media for a bit. Um, so it's not, again, it's not causing us to be addicted to it. It's not so compelling that it would make us do something we didn't want to do. It's because we just enjoy it. Is there any evidence to suggest that technology is impacting negatively on children's development? So again, there's very little evidence of this at all. Um, the brain imaging studies that look at children's development and technology show very, very small correlations that again, aren't necessarily of any practical impact or importance in terms of children's actual development. There's some evidence that very, very high use of technology might impact on say attention and working memory when they're a bit older. There was similar ev evidence of that with television, but it was like seven hours of television or more could impact on um, attention in adolescence. So I think you have to be using it a lot, but it also depends what kids are doing. So again, it's about context and content. If they are using Skype to chat with their grandparents, 
if they're using educational tools or fun games that like um, Minecraft or something like that, that's not going to necessarily have any negative impact on them at all. If they're watching seven hours of unboxing videos a day or they're looking at violent content or if they're four or five years old and looking at lots of pornography or something, that's not going to be good for them um, because they won't understand it. Um, it's not engaging their brains at all. So it really depends what they're doing. And most parents have a pretty good intuitive idea about what kinds of things are appropriate for their kids to be doing and what kind of things their kids are able for um, and able to actually deal with online. It's really the kids who are left on their own just to browse YouTube for hours and hours and hours that would be an issue. But I think that would be an issue with kids on their own doing anything without any engaging um, activity or, or parents or other caregivers kind of supervising or making sure that activity is beneficial for them. Is how we conduct relationships changing because of technology? So I think it's interesting. Obviously, how we're how we're meeting is changing because most people meet or the vast majority of people meet through online dating now rather than in person. It's become the, the kind of number one way of meeting. And you still meet through friends and in other locations, but this is definitely one way that a lot of people are meeting. And it changes you know, the way that people meet. When you meet someone in person, you view them in a more holistic way because you get a sense of who they are. You can see their body language. You can see how warm they are or get a feeling if there's any chemistry. With online dating, it's a different process. But essentially what online do dating is doing is getting you to that face-to-face -face meeting to make those same decisions. Um, so it's not really changing it that much. Um, in terms of the relationships themselves, technology can have an impact. So in with couples who are using technology to communicate with each other, as lots do, it can be actually quite positive because your phone becomes a repository of positive information about your relationship. So you've got photographs, you've got texts that you can look back on and remember good moments. So that can actually be a really positive thing. Some couples have found that it can also be useful if they're having an argument because they can take a bit more time to think about what they're saying and not react in the moment and to kind of calmly discuss things. Um, whereas other couples find that arguing online is a negative because if someone is cruel or says something hurtful, there's a repository in your phone where there's a record of that. So it can be positive or negative. And um, one of the things that can be a little bit of a problem is fubbing where you are with your partner or with someone and you're on your phone with somebody else and you're ignoring the person you're with. Um, and that can be a problem with friendships, with relationships, etc., because the person that you're with feels like you, they're not the most important person that's there. You're on your phone to somebody else. Um, and nobody really likes that. Having said that, even though nobody really likes it, almost everybody does it to somebody else anyway. But that can be an issue where people are just distracted from being in the moment with their partner. Okay, everything you've said there suggests that you can have a healthy relationship with your phone and social media. It's possible and it's in your hands. So what are the steps we need to take to have that healthy relationship with technology? I think a good way to look at it or to frame it is the idea of habits. So we all have some habits that are healthy and we all have some habits that are less healthy and, and that we know don't serve us very well. And so looking, being conscious and looking at our own behavior online and what we're doing and how it makes us feel 
and then trying to change those habits, the things that don't make us feel so good. So if you are doom scrolling and it's not making you feel good, if you are scrolling through Instagram and constantly comparing yourself to influencers or other people who are presenting a very positive image of themselves, but you're not actually connecting with anybody and it's not making you feel good, then that might be a habit worth changing and instead maybe unfollow some of those people or mute them for a little while and see if that makes you feel better connect with your friends more, post more yourself maybe, um, so that you see that everybody's a bit selective about what they post. So I think it's about being aware of our own behavior, being aware of how it makes us feel. Um, so I've heard people suggest that keeping a journal for a week or two and seeing you know, how your technology use is actually making you feel can be really useful because then you can start to change those habits and make them ones that improve your well-being rather than maybe take away from it. Finally, Nicola, cyber psychology is an unusual discipline. Can you tell us about the course at the Institute of Art, Design and Technology? So it was the first master's in cyber psychology in the world. It was set up by Dr. Gronja Kirwan back in 2007. And I took the course myself back in 2009. An absolutely brilliant course. It's quite broad. It covers um, a really wide kind of look at the field of cyber psychology, everything from virtual reality and artificial intelligence to online persuasion and cybersecurity to how we communicate, um, how we engage with other people online. So it gives you a really good look at the whole field and then students get the opportunity to delve much deeper into some of the areas with their projects and their research projects and the assignments. It's very much driven by what the students are interested in. And a discipline that I'm sure is going to become more and more relevant as time goes on. Thank you, Nicola, for joining us on the podcast today. You're very welcome. Thank you for listening to The Explainer and a big thank you to Nicola for speaking to us. This episode was brought to you by producers Nikki Ryan and Aoife Barry and my co-presenter Michelle Hennessy. The Good Information Project is co-funded by Journal Media and a grant programme from the European Parliament. The European Parliament has no involvement in nor responsibility for the editorial content published by the project. Thanks, Slán Thamel. <laughs>